Um, I, I'm in between here because I just wrapped up our last series uh, last week about these dangerous prayers, and we, we wrapped it up with praying this last prayer of, Lord, send me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of follow up with that, with this morning's message about where Christ would send us and what he would have us do, actually. Um, I didn't want to start another series this Sunday because I have something great in store for you next Sunday. Um, Julie Frady is going to bring the message next Sunday. Um, there's something the Lord's put on her heart out of conversation that she's had with some of you. She came and talked to me, and I said, this would be a great Sunday, so I'll be here, but she's going to preach, so it's like having the day off. Um, so thanks, Julie, for doing that. Um, I did want to give you a little bit of an update. Our general conference wrapped up down in Orlando, Florida this weekend. Um, Josh is here somewhere. I saw him. I smell him. Something like that. There he is. Uh, and Josh was down there and enjoyed the time there at General Conference. But we have three new bishops. All three of our previous bishops decided to step down. Um, they, uh, I think one of them wants to retire. The other two, there's some other things they wanted to do. They've served as our board of bishops for 12 years. They've been a terrific board of bishops for us. And so we're thankful for them and we release them to the next chapter of their ministry. And we elected three new bishops and... The, probably the highlight of this, the most significant thing to me, is that we elected our first female bishop. And so Dr. Linda Adams is now bishop of the Free Methodist Church. And Linda has served for about, I'm not going to get the, the numbers right, but I'm guessing about 20 years she served as the director of International Child Care Ministries. And some of you know all about ICCM where you sponsor children. It's an amazing ministry. It is the highest rated child sponsorship program in the United States because they get more money to the kids of the amount that's given than any other, more than Compassion International and Save the Children, anything like that. So it's been an amazing thing. And ICCM has grown, it's multiplied, it's changed over the years. And Linda has very capably led that transition and those things. Um, she's also been a pastor and a capable church leader, so we're thankful for Linda. She's not the only one of the new bishops. Bishop uh, Matt Whitehead was elected. He was previously superintendent of the Pacific Northwest Conference for many, many years as their superintendent in what I believe is the largest conference we have. It has the most churches and the most uh, uh, members and attenders in the United States, so Matt's a capable leader. And uh, then finally, Keith Cowart, Bishop Cowart uh, was elected. He's from Atlanta, Georgia area and um, has been a church planter and a team builder down there. Um, and these three people are very gifted and I'm excited to see what God's going to do with some new leadership there. Um, it's a good thing. So those are the big things. Another thing that happened that's significant for us here is our superintendent, Bruce Cromwell, that many of you know and have met, um, he was elected to serve on the Denominational Board of Administration, which is kind of the legal administrative overseers for the denomination. This is a big deal for us because our conference, the Great Plains Conference, we have not had a representative on that denominal, dom, denominational BOA for over 20 years, I believe. And so it's good that we've got a representative there again. And um, I was just thrilled that he got elected. So just some upkeep and 
housekeeping that, uh, of things that are happening. If you want more information, go to fmcusa.org and you can find all kinds of information there about other things that were decided. God is good. Um, now, I want to switch gears because I want to talk to you about when we talk about sending. So if you were in here when we started worship with the video, um, you're a little bit ahead, but maybe you're a little bit confused. Because there was this video of a woman and she's packing up and she's getting ready to leave and go. And we prayed last week as part of our message, Lord, send me. And sometimes we get frustrated and we talked a little bit last week about, well, send me where? Where do we go? And maybe where isn't as important as how. And a big piece of how in our world is how we reach and interact with and love the lost. And so I've been challenged, because I've been thinking about this a little bit in my own life and asking God to help me as I connect with people who do not know Jesus Christ and have not had any relationship with him. I want to be, um, to use church words, I want to be a soul winner. And I know many of you do too, but it's frustrating at times. We think, I, I say things about Jesus, I talk to my friends that, aren't followers of Jesus, but they don't just go, wow, you, you've got it all right and come running to our church next Sunday, do they? And so how do I do that? And, and so the image I have in my mind is to think of a key because it seems to me that many, many people are very close to the kingdom of God, but there seems to be an obstacle and removing that obstacle might be crucial. And how do we do that? And maybe we're the key that turns the lock, that opens the door, and, and shows them a way from where they're at into the kingdom of God, the love of the Lord, and following and serving him in, in a new way. So think of that key, but we're going to look at this, and I'm going to walk us through a passage in the, the letter to the Colossians in a moment to help us understand how we can interact with people around us that we love that are lost and how we can share with them the love of Jesus Christ. But I want to start with some frustration, because this does come from a place of frustration. It seems like we don't have to look around very far to see that there are things going on in the world around us that don't please God. In fact, we can look around us and we don't have to go very far and we can see things that are the kinds of things that would make us shake our head and go, that is not the way it should be. I mean, we have a graphic image of that in the request that John Mark brought to pray for the family of this young lady whose life was just snuffed out because somebody chose to, to violently take her life. We see this as we go throughout our city and we see people panhandling because they're homeless and they don't have a job and they're, they're struggling with substance abuse and mental health issues. And we go, that is not the way God intended things to be. And how can we see that change? And we see neighbors who... They, we know they're not living in ways that please God and we grieve because their marriages are ending and their kids are leaving home and don't want to talk to them again and they're losing a job and they're, they're struggling and we just see that we live in a world that shows a lot of evidence of godlessness. And that's just here around us in Wichita. If we go out and push it onto a grander scale, we see nations threatening war against each other. We see people, refugees, fleeing from war and from poverty. And we know that God doesn't want that. It's godlessness going on there in the world. And so how in the world is God at work in the world? 
When we see all these things happening, it's a struggle at times for us to reconcile that with what we know about a God who is so powerful, who is so compassionate, who is so present. Why does this stuff happen? Why is it that such a powerful, amazing, loving God is here in the world, but the world doesn't recognize him, doesn't respond to him, doesn't want him? Years ago, we had gone on vacation. And um, I want, I got to tell you, I get to do this illustration today because my daughter Linnea is here with us. We, were, we went on vacation. Linnea was little, I don't know, two, maybe three years old. Just a little tight toddler. And in our rush to go on vacation, we just, you know, the pressure of ministry and job and things like that, we just threw things in suitcases and the equipment we were taking on vacation and we jumped in the car and we left and we came home and our house wasn't clean. There were still dirty dishes in the sink and beds were not made and we walked in the front door and we were exhausted from traveling on our vacation and we come in and we walk in the front door and this little beautiful girl, toddler, Linnea, in front of us walks into the house and looks around and the first thing she said is she just sums up our home that was left in a whirlwind when we went on vacation, she looked around and in her two to three-year-old voice says, this place is a joke. <laughs> now, <laughs> mom and I, I mean, we were, we were of mixed emotion because at the same time we were just like, we left it this way. And then at the same time we're just about to bust out laughing because she would very astutely say, this place is a joke. And then we kind of look at each other and go, where did she get that from? Well, she got it from us. I mean, at some point she heard us go, this place is a joke. You know, snarky, sarcastic, a little bit of attitude. She's had 23 years to develop that now. But this idea, this, and, and I, you know what? As I remember that and the way we kind of laughed but at the same time looked around and we were a little bit embarrassed, we were a little bit uncomfortable and grieved, we walk out of our front door into the world, we get in our car and we drive on 235 and we go, this place is a joke, right? I do. You guys are saints. I mean, you know, for the last 30 years you couldn't drive Kellogg without saying that, right? We look at what's happening in politics. We look at what's happening in society and we might be tempted to go, this place is a joke. Why in the world does our church have a ministry where we feed people twice a month? We just hand out food. Why do we have a ministry where every few months we do family promise and we bring homeless families into this building and we let them sleep here and we feed them and we get to know them? Why do we do that? Unless this place is a joke. People don't have homes. They don't have food. They don't have Jesus. And we look around, and over time, I think we as followers of Jesus Christ tend to allow a little, a little bit of faithlessness to creep into our hearts, and we go, this place is a joke, and where is the God of creation? Where is Almighty in this, and why isn't he moving in ways to change that? Now, if I'm not talking about you, that's great, but this is how I feel at times. And in having conversations with some of you, I know it's how you feel at times. Whether it's the way people drive or the way people vote or the way people treat their neighbors or the way they treat their spouse, doesn't matter. 
It seems like God in a godless world. And we then might think, well, if God hasn't changed this, maybe it's because God has been removed. And I know you've heard me talk about this. Just forgive me. I, get, I keep coming back to this. But we have a tendency to say, well, you know, the reason of this is we've removed God. We've taken God out of schools. We've taken him out of government. We've taken him out of churches. We've taken him out of the Bible. We've taken him wherever. Whatever the context you want to have. Maybe it's because God has been removed And I, I see that, I even say those words at times, and then I kind of get challenged by that because it's a little bit of a betrayal, it's a little bit of a tell about what I believe about God and what I believe about us. Because here's the thing, there's certain things that we know about God, that we believe about God, we declare them about God, that make it really difficult for us to make the argument that somehow God has been removed. We believe in our orthodox theology that God is omnipresent. What does that mean? Say it again. He's everywhere. And yet, if we say, you know, God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but we have removed him from whatever the context is, from the family, from our home, from our church, from our school, from whatever... There's an incongruity with what we say we believe and what we then actually seem to speak of and act on. I, I don't think in what I believe that God can be removed, but we think that we can remove God. And that says, I think, a lot about what we presume to be able to do in the face of God. So I, I want to check myself and us as a community of believers, if we think that we can remove God or that anyone else can remove God, we are foolishly overplaying our hand. I don't think I have the power. I don't think our president has the power. I don't think the United Nations have the power. Whatever body you think there is that's really powerful, I don't think any of them have the the power to say to God, get out. And I would just add, thank God. So, we look around and we say, well, you know, kind of like instead of Elvis left the building, God left the building. And that's why that church died. That's why that city is in bad shape. That's why that segment of society is poor. That we can add whatever we want because somehow there's a disconnect with God and God is not there. And yet, I don't think it is within our power to actually remove God and give him any kind of eviction notice. I just don't think we can do that. So what it says about God maybe is in error. But what it says about us is some kind of a twisted thing where we actually believe that people have the power to shake their fist at God and survive. Where they can actually defy God and stand. I don't think it's possible. I'm being really idealistic on that. But... That's what it looks like in a godless world, that maybe we think God has been removed, but God is not removed. Maybe it's that we're unaware of that he's there, we're unaware of what he's doing, and it seems to us that he is inactive or absent. So, imagine with me a minute that we could somehow, um, you know, transport, like Star Trek, you know, we just sort of go into the transporter and we turn to glitter and then we show up on a planet. But instead of a planet, we transport from the United States and we get transported to the heart of Syria. 
in the midst of their civil war, and we look around and we go, nobody here worships Jesus. They worship Muhammad here. And even that might not be worship because this looks really carnal and humanist. It doesn't look holy in any way, shape, or form. It looks unholy. And cities are destroyed and people are starving and children are being killed and people are fleeing and we can go on and on and we can go, God is, God is not here. There's a thing that we have done historically in the church where we have this idea that when a holy place is no longer used for holy purposes, we can sort of desanctify it or de... Um, uh, uh, oh, I just forgot the word. Um, but we, we take away the holy intent of the building. And I don't know if any of you, uh, some of you have heard stories. You've heard the story of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. We have a guy by the name of Ichabod Crane. But does anybody know what an actual Ichabod is? Julie knows. Julie knows everything. So an Ichabod is a document. And it's a document historically that has been used in the church that when the church abandons a building and they say this is no longer going to be a church or a cathedral or a temple anymore, when we leave, we are, not, we are sort of secularizing the building. It's no longer a sacred place. And we write out a document that says this is no longer a church and it's usually, it used to be put on the door and it was an Ichabod. And literally, part of the verbiage, part of the wording in that document said the Spirit of the Lord has left this place. And I just absolutely refuse to ever do anything like that. Because here's what I think. If God has been present anywhere, and if God has been present everywhere, I don't ever want that to change. So we may desanctify this building and they turn it into, I don't know, a movie theater or a club. I don't know. But I want the presence of the Lord to be as powerful here with whoever comes after us as it is while we're here. Not only that, I want people to be able to go into places that have been absolutely filthy, dark, and disgusting. And I want when God's people show up, I want that place to be a holy place because they're there. And because he is there, and they're aware that he is there. And so if we have this understanding that God is Emmanuel, God with us, wherever we go, there he is. So I say all that to set us up because then that brings us to the point, if that's the case, why is it that people aren't going, oh, your God showed up and he was amazing. So we're going to look at this. But as we look at this and we tend tend to think, okay, God has been removed from the world and we don't see these things. Our tendency as those who say we believe Jesus and commit ourselves to follow Jesus, our tendency, I think, is to have one of two reactions. When we look around us and we don't see a world that is being reconciled to God, we either get angry and we go, this isn't right and something should be done about it. And generally, as our anger builds, we think somebody should be punished. And sometimes we do this really quickly where all of a sudden we see somebody who says something, wears something, does something, has some kind of facial expression and we go, stop it. Because we're responding in anger. Or, if we don't become anger, uh, angry, we become resigned. And we go, well, God's not at work with them. They're not allowing God. And so, you can just ignore them and push them aside. Some in some theological and doctrinal Christian circles will even go so far as to say, they're not elect 
They're not chosen. They'll never be Christians. That's just the way it is. And they're resigned to that. I think either anger or resignation displeases God. So we're going to deal with this, and we're going to look at this a little bit in Colossians chapter 1. As Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he says these things. Um, This is in the NLT. Um, If you're following along in your Bible, it might look a little bit different. Um, Later on, it's going to look really different. And um, I wish I'd changed the version, but when we get there, I'll tell you what I wish it said. What I wish the Bible said. Oh, my goodness. I better read. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Okay, that God is complete. He's fully there. He was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. I just want to stop here for a moment. Notice this is past tense. He reconciled everything to himself through Christ, in Christ. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by the means of Christ's blood on the cross. Past tense. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. There it is. He's there. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance that you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I am glad. This is hard. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the suffering of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you the assurance of sharing his glory. So tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. So we're going to tear that apart here in just a moment. But I want us to recognize that there's always some construction going on. Something is under construction everywhere. Folks, we live in Wichita, most of us. And we know road construction here is eternal. Right? They just finished the, you know, the 235 Kellogg interchange, and now 235 North is going... Uh, and it's getting ground up and turned into whole different interchanges. And, I mean, it just seems like construction never ends. I remember in high school when they started putting the flyovers in Kellogg. And I don't think construction on Kellogg has stopped since then. And that wasn't five years ago, folks. 
That was a long time ago. I mean, we just kind of live with the sense that there's perpetual construction. Things break down and they need to be rebuilt. Things wear out or they're not big enough anymore and we need to... Construction is going on all the time. And I just want you to live with the sense that God is always at work doing some kind of construction in the lives of people everywhere. We are still works in progress. And I just have to tell you that for myself, I just say, thank you, Jesus. Because there are things in me that I still want to see change. I want to see them become more Christ-like. I want to die more to myself and live more to him than I did last week. I hope that my holiness is an ongoing, building, developing thing until the day I die. And I believe that is possible with him. We are still works in progress. So there's some under construction all the time. And some of you are are right there with me. You know what I'm talking about because you can look back and say, I'm a better person than I was two, three, five years ago. And yet I hope that two, three, five years from now, I'm much closer to Christ and I'm wiser and I'm more compassionate and I'm able to discern truth from fake better than I can now. But here's the thing. Paul tells us, and he tells the church in Colossae, we are reconciled to Christ, but we are still human. He said this work of reconciliation is gone, and so we, we are set right with Christ, that we are freed in Christ. We're no longer bound by the guilt of our sin, but we're still human, and we are frail, and we are faulty, and we have a tendency to do things that we regret. And so there's still this propensity. Yes, I can have my sins forgiven, but I can still screw up. I know that about myself all too well. You guys know that about me, and (laughs) I know that about some of you. And so even though we are reconciled to Christ, we are still humans, and so we recognize that we are still under construction. We are still works in progress. And I hope we can always recognize that because when I mess up and when you mess up, I hope there's some sense in us that we go, it's okay, you are a child of God and you will improve and get better and become more holy and more conformed to his image. And you don't have to be perfect in the sense that you have no faults, but you have to be perfected in the sense that you are all that God intends you to be right now. That's my definition of perfection. Some of you have heard me say this before. It's, it's not mine alone. I got it from somebody else. When I was in college, I had a professor, and we were uh, in a theology class, and we were talking about what it means to be perfected in our faith. And he goes, you know, if I were to hand you a newborn baby, so if we had Atticus in here, he's the newest baby in our church. If I were to hand you Atticus, and you guys would hold Atticus, and you'd look at this little guy, you might do what I tend to do, and you'd look at his little tiny fingers, and there's, there's five on each hand, exactly what there should be. If you look at his little tiny, tiny toes, there's five on each foot. And he would look up at you, and you know he may not be able to focus his vision very well and discern you know, your outline that great in his vision. We don't really know that much about how much vision a baby has. But as he looks at you, you just go, oh my goodness, you know, he's looking at me, it's great. And we might hold little Atticus and say he's perfect. His parents have probably said that. I know his grandparents have, right? Great-grandparents. He's perfect. But he's not perfected in that he's, 
He's flawless. He's not perfected in that he has overcome every obstacle in his path. It's not that he's, you've heard me say this before, it's not that he's perfected because he can do complex calculus. No. But he's perfect in that he is all that he is intended to be right now. He has ten fingers, he has ten toes, and he, he loves to be held by his mom, his dad, his grandparents, and any of the rest of us. At least that's been my experience. And we would look at this guy and say, what a perfect gift for this family, for our church, and for the world. And we would say that about any other child. And in fact, we might see a child that we might think has some form of imperfection, that maybe they were born with four fingers, or a cleft palate, or a a birthmark. And we wouldn't for a moment go, oh, what a disaster. No, we would say, oh, this must be what we needed. And we will love this little one, and somehow we will watch the wonder of how this little one grows, even though we would think that they should have been born in a different way. And that is perfect for us. Years ago, I visited a family who had two children who were developmentally disabled that were already, had already reached adulthood, and they were very developmentally disabled, so they had a very low sense of understanding and judgment, and the way they interacted socially was like little children. And so I sat there in this living room with a young man and a young girl who had this very crude conversation between them about me, the friend that they had just met, And I found myself sitting there just smiling and laughing, and it was so much fun. And I realized that they were in their 20s. They were talking as though they were four- and five-year-olds, but they were absolutely thrilled that I was sitting there with them and we were talking together. And in that moment, it was all that it was intended to be. And my friends, it was perfect. It was perfect. So we just recognize there's some things that are under construction. Some things will not be what we think they should be, but things will be reconciled to God. And we need to stay with the hope that the good news of God does the work of reconciliation. That's what Paul said. Remain in that hope. Stay with the hope that God's good work will work. And we might be tempted to give up and go, you know what, I've known that guy for 20 years and he's a jerk and he's a sinner. He's a reprobate. He's a drunk. We could go on and on. And God is still at work in that person's life. Some of us may not live to see the fruit of that, and they may resist God until the day they die, but God will not stop working. He will not stop the construction in any person's life. So this is in CEB, the, um, the version I really wanted this to come from. But let's go back to this, verses 22 to 24. Paul says this, But now he has reconciled, remember I said that's past tense, he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you before God as people who are holy, uh, faultless, and without blame. That was the work of Christ. That's why Christ came, that's why he died, that's why he rose again. That was done. But you need to remain well established and rooted in faith and not shift away from the hope given in the good news that you've heard. Stay with hope. So for some of you that are sitting here today, I'm just going to stop here for a moment, and you go, you know, I cannot see this situation improving. My word to you is just stay with hope in the good news of God. 
the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, this message has been preached throughout all creation. I like this better. Not just that throughout the known world or the world. It's been preached throughout all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of this good news. And then he goes on with this. Now, I'm happy to be suffering for you. This is Paul talking. And let's just stop for a moment. You remember the sufferings of Paul. Some of you know the life of Paul really well. Paul was mistreated by people. He was run out of town. He was stoned. He had to escape going over the wall of a city. He was imprisoned and he eventually died. Incarcerated. And Paul says, now I'm happy to be suffering for you. And then he says this crazy, crazy line. I'm completing what was missing from Christ's suffering. Now some of us might sit here and go, whoa, Paul, hold on. Walk that back a little bit, buddy. You have put yourself in the position of, salv- uh, of Savior. You are our salvation. That's what you're saying. I am completing what is missing from Christ's suffering with my own body. I'm doing this for the sake of his body, which is the church. So what Paul is saying is, you know what? Where the good news yet needs to go, I will suffer so that it gets there. And I've got to tell you, folks, for some of us, that's something that we shy away from when we see, whoa, hold on, that's a really dark, filthy place still. I'm not going there. But there are some that God is going to lay it on their heart and he will empower them and they will go there. They will go. And I thank God that some people do that. Some people do that in amazing, huge, miraculous ways. And some of us, it's just talking to that neighbor again when they come home and they're really angry or they're drunk or they're walking out the house because they just had a fight with their wife. So I come to this. This, I think, is how we give away our faith. This is how we share our faith. We become servants of the good news. And Paul says, I'm completing the work that Christ started to make sure that people can hear about Jesus Christ who did this. It is our job to complete the work that was started on the cross. That's the privilege God gives us. To share the good news as servants of the good news. So I asked myself this question this week. If that's the case, if that's the privilege God has given us, Why are so many of us not telling people about this? Why aren't we telling people about Jesus? If we are here to complete the good news and make sure people find out that this is what it's like to be freed in Christ, to have your sins forgiven, to be put right with him and to be put on a path that brings you to peace with him, why aren't we telling people about that? Now, as I say that to you, some of you, you know, you're probably already guilt-ridden. You're going, oh, I'm terrible. Pastor, don't talk about this because when I'm standing there and somebody's asking me, I do not want to say, you should just ask Jesus. Jesus is the answer. I'll just put a bumper sticker on my car instead. But here's the thing. I, 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 as I was thinking about this, I was going around the internet looking and I found an article by a guy that I really respect. Eric Geiger is a pastor at Mariner's Church and he's a writer. I've read a couple of his books. And, and we see that we are not doing what is needed to actually complete the work like Paul did. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, we need to measure up to Paul. He did amazing things. And some of us, you know, are simple people and we have a very small circle of influence. But we all have a circle of influence. And we need to recognize that we might be what is missing. So Geiger says this. He says... 
The reason why we don't talk about what Jesus is capable of doing is that we are no longer in awe of what Jesus has done. I just want to just, just sit with that for a minute. The reason we are reluctant to talk about Jesus to others is because we are no longer in awe of what Jesus has already done. We become really, really comfortable and even callous with the power and the majesty and the wonder of God setting someone free. And we are told in Scripture that when one person returns to the fold, when one person returns to Christ, the angels in heaven rejoice. But we've somehow lost the awe and the wonder of that, that that is an immense, eternal, miraculous thing that should make us stop in our steps and go, wow, do you know what just happened? Geiger goes on and he says this, if we are still in awe that the holy and eternal God of the universe would pursue us in our sinfulness, humble himself and suffer in our place, become the curse of our sin and absorb our punishment to give us his peace, then we can't help but share the good news. If we are convinced that the news about Jesus is truly good news, we can't help but spread it. And so I'm sitting here and I'm wondering, well then if we have such a hard time sharing our faith with others, we have lost the sense of awe that that encompasses. And we need to say, Jesus Open our eyes again so that we can see just how amazing it is for someone whose chains are broken. We need to see again just how amazing it is for someone who can say, I am walking away from the mess and I'm running hard after Jesus. And we need to say that is a miracle and it is a wonder and in that moment the angels are singing and we should be praising God too. And if we can capture that all, we will talk about it all the time. You see, it's a simple and a powerful thing. If we understand how amazing and how inspiring it is, we will not stop talking about it. Some of you have had this experience where we go on vacation and you go to one of these places in the world that just seems like a sacred place because it's so beautiful and it's so huge and it's so dynamic and it's awe-inspiring. And I've been to these places. I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and it's amazing. And I come home from being at the Grand Canyon and I'll tell some of you, I'll go, oh man, have you ever been there? It's awesome. Have you been to the South Rim? It's incredible. And some of you go, oh yeah, I've been there. It's great. Have you seen the condors that fly over? They're huge. I've been to Sequoia National Forest in California, the giant sequoias, these, the biggest trees in the world. They are amazing. And to me, this is a holy place because those trees, you know, they have soft bark. So any sound, it doesn't bounce off. And in that place, everything is quiet. You can yell and it doesn't bounce off. It doesn't echo and it just absorbs it. And it just seems like God said, this place will be quiet. And it's awesome. And it's amazing underneath these towering, enormous trees. And I stand there and I go, have you ever been there? It's, you should go. You would love it. And I tell people about that. And I come back from a vacation like you come back from a vacation, whether you've been at the beach or the mountains or just to see your family, and you go, you should do this. It's amazing. You should go to Disney World. You should, whatever. Because we have this sense of awe with what we have just experienced. 
If we have that same sense of awe because we are standing before the God who plucks sinners out of the fire, we would tell people about that too. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, Jesus' followers got in trouble for doing that very thing. They, were, they went around and they were telling about what Jesus could do. And if you remember the context, they had gone to the temple to worship and there's a guy sitting there outside the temple and he's begging because he can't walk. So he can't walk, so he can't hold down a job. He has no livelihood and he's begging and he says to Peter and John, hey, how about giving me a little bit of money? And Peter and John are flat broke. And sometimes the best thing in the world for a sinner is a broke Christian. And we just went through this. Then we, two weeks ago, we talked about praying the prayer, Lord, break me. And here's Peter and John. They're broke, and they're broke in more ways than one. Not only do they not have any money, they have watched their Savior crucified, and they've watched their Savior ascend back into heaven, and now we're going to worship him at the temple, and this guy goes, how about a little bit of money? <laughs> and they, we can't give you money. Silver and gold, we don't have it. But what I have, I will give you. And the guy is healed and he jumps up and he runs around the temple and he's praising God and he is living in awe. And he's running around the temple and he goes, can you believe it? Look at my legs. And he's jumping up and down in the temple and people go, what in the world are you doing? The thing about awe is there are people who will think it is entirely inappropriate. So this is what happens and they haul Peter and John and they go, what in the world is going on? What are you guys talking about? Oh, it's this Jesus guy that we crucified and they tell him, you need to stop talking about Jesus. They literally tell him, stop talking about Jesus. And this is their answer. As for us, we cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. When you've experienced Jesus and you understand how powerful and dynamic it is, it's like the guy in the temple and it's like us, Peter and John. You can ask us to stop talking, but it ain't happening. Because Jesus has done such a mighty work, we will talk about this. And my friends, if we as a church are failing to talk about the mighty work of God, then we should say, God, do another mighty work here so we have something to talk about. When we've experienced God, we will tell people about him. Now, for some of us, that comes easier than for others. We're not talkative. We're introverted. I don't want to be embarrassed. But my friends, when we encounter that powerful presence, we cannot help it. And so Peter and John were being absolutely honest and they said, you can tell us not to talk. You can make it illegal. You can try to remove God. Good luck. Because we've experienced it and it's inspiring and we are in awe and we have to talk. When we see God working, we will keep talking. When we see God at work, we'll keep sharing it. We'll tell the stories. I love it. I absolutely love it when somebody says, tell me what's going on in your church. Someone who does not know our church, and I can tell them all of our stories because they don't know who you are. And they don't, they don't have to go through the stuff of, I see you guys every Sunday and we have coffee together and you know sometimes we get along great and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we sing beautiful songs and sometimes the chords don't go so well and sometimes the slides aren't lined up and you know, and we get caught up in these little minutiae, but I get to tell them the stories about this is my brother or this is my sister in Christ and this is what God is doing in their life and it is amazing. It is amazing. 